0: The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by Estelis, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus
1: Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., and Pfizer, Inc. The chart here. So first, um, just an overview what, of what genetics versus genomics is. And, you know, we see these terms thrown around a lot, and sometimes they're used interchangeably. Uh, but, you know, there are sort of different. So genetics is the study of a uh, specific single genes and the function and composition of the gene, and usually genetics refer to hereditary um, uh, the, the, the germ-like genetics versus genomics refer to a complete set of uh, genome in an individual and how, that, uh, how the genetic information interact with each other and their environment. Genomic evaluation can also refer to tumor, uh, tumor environment and how it interacts with the host um, interaction. Why should urologists care about genetics of urologic cancer? Well, it turned out that the heredity of um, of urologic cancer is exceptionally high and, in fact, much higher than colorectal cancer, which is about 15%. So there is a large study based on the uh, 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 cancer risk in modern zygotic versus dizygotic twins of an individual with cancer diagnosis. And from that, we were able to deduce uh, that the heredity of prostate cancer is almost 60 percent, testes cancer is 37 percent, kidney is 38, and bladder uh, is lowest, but it's still very high comparable to breast cancer at 30 percent. And if a germline mutation is found in an individual with urologic cancer, there's a lot of clinical actionability based on that information, The first is that their family member, even those without a cancer diagnosis, can qualify for genetic testing, uh, usually covered by insurance and also genetic company for free. Second, there are prophylactic surgery, and Angelina Jolie probably is the most uh, well-known example of someone who underwent prophylactic mastectomy and urophorectomy to mitigate the risk of being a BRCA1 germ-like carrier there's increased cancer surveillance, patients with a germline mutation in a cancer predisposition gene, such as a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, are at risk of developing additional cancer diagnosis. So they qualify for enhanced cancer surveillance. So as you can see here, a normal patient would get mammogram, but someone with a BRCA germline mutation would qualify for breast MRI and... Um, certain breast tumors may be missed on standard mammogram compared to MRI. Certain ger- malign mutations, there may be chemo preventions. So tamoxifen is being investigated for breast cancer um, prophylaxis in, in an individual with BRCA mutation versus in Lynch syndrome. Aspirin has been shown to be effective in reducing the risk of colorectal cancer. And if we miss patients at early stages of of their cancer, in advanced stages, there are targeted therapy, including BOP inhibitor in BRCA1 and 2 carrier, versus immunotherapy in patients with Lynch syndrome. And this medication will be uh, covered later in our talk. So I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Uh, Maria Baker, who will talk about component of genetic counseling and evaluation.
2: So I'll start us off by talking about genetic counseling and testing for hereditary GU cancer. During my presentation, I'll review the traditional model of genetic counseling and testing for hereditary cancer and why it may not be sustainable given the expanding indications for genetic testing. I'll discuss the evolution of multi-gene panel testing, including the pros and cons using case examples, and introduced alternative service delivery models to address challenges with access to cancer genetic testing. So although there are some cancer susceptibility genes that were discovered prior to 1990, for example, the retinoblastoma gene, really the field of clinical cancer genetics uh, evolved as a result of the Human Genome Project, which started in 1990 and was completed in 2003, somewhat surprisingly ahead of schedule and under budget for a federally funded program. For example, um, the, there were a variety of genes that were discovered during that uh, decade following the beginning of the Human Genome Project. The mismatch repair genes involved in Lynch syndrome were discovered between 1993 and 1995. They're responsible for the most common hereditary cause of colorectal and endometrial cancer. Uh, importantly, for the purposes of our course today, Lynch syndrome also increases the risk for GU. Cancers, including upper tract urothelial carcinoma involving the kidneys and the ureters, as well as cancer of the bladder and the prostate. In addition, we have the discovery of the BRCA1 and 2 genes in 1994 and 1995, and clinical testing became available for those genes in 1996. Um, they are they represent the most common hereditary cause for. Uh, breast and ovarian cancer, but of importance in our course today, they do increase the risk of prostate cancer, and there's a tendency towards more aggressive prostate cancer, which plays into the criteria for eligibility for genetic testing. In addition, these genes increase the risk for pancreatic cancer, male breast cancer, as well as BRCA2 has been associated with melanoma. So the traditional approach to cancer genetic testing, which has been going on since the 1990s when these genes were discovered, involved a sequential approach where we would test for one gene or condition that was highest on our differential. And it was very important that we got pathology reports to verify the accuracy of the information because we were going to create that differential uh, diagnosis and order a test that at the time was thousands of dollars. Um, If the testing came back negative, then we would consider reflexing to the next most likely gene or condition, spending another several thousand dollars. So there are potential downsides to this sequential approach. It's very time intensive. Uh, There's the potential to um, develop testing fatigue, not only for the provider, but the patient as well, and it's also very costly. But fortunately, in 2012, uh, there was the introduction of the next generation sequencing panels or multi gene panel tests. Seemingly, overnight, the way we practice changed tremendously. So, with a traditional approach, rather than using Sanger sequencing, which involves um, generating one sequence read per base pair in both the forward and reverse direction, with next generation sequencing, we're doing massively parallel sequencing to generate multiple sequence reads per base pair, followed by uh, alignment of those reads for the purpose of variant calling. In this sample hereditary cancer panel, on the left-hand side, you can see that there are a number of different cancer susceptibility genes, and across the top, you can see that these genes predispose to a variety of different cancers. This is what we call a pan-cancer panel, because it doesn't focus on genes that predispose to just, you know, one major specific type of cancer, but it encompasses a variety of different cancer susceptibility conditions that include a number of different types of cancers. So, the laboratories uh, each develop their own approach to uh, creating these next-generation sequencing panels. Uh, The pan-cancer panel, which I already mentioned to you, where there's really no flexibility to add genes or remove genes. The cancer-focused panels, for example, a panel focusing specifically on major breast cancer susceptibility genes. And then you could choose to make that panel larger or smaller, depending on whether the patient felt comfortable with including genes that don't currently have any guidelines associated with them if a mutation were found. So if the patient's not comfortable with not having guidelines, once a mutation is found, you would focus on a guideline-focused panel where they're guaranteed to have, for example, NCCN guidelines developed. Then some labs allowed us to customize our panel to pick our own genes out of a selection of genes that they offer. Uh, Many of these labs introduced uh, the ability to reflex to a larger panel at no additional charge for a defined period of time, and some of them developed stat panels where we could get test results in as little as five to seven days if, for example, surgery was pending and we wanted the genetic test results to inform surgical decision-making. Now in the traditional uh, role of genetic counselors, we would get involved up front. Um, We would educate the patient about the risks, benefits, and limitations of genetic testing. We would coordinate that testing and then meet with that patient in person on on the back end when the results became available. But this is rapidly becoming unsustainable because of the expanding indications for genetic testing. And I'm not trying to put myself out of a job, but it's just the reality of the situation. There aren't enough genetics providers to be able to accommodate all of this germline testing. And so the genetic counselor, if they are involved in that traditional upfront model, they're going to start by eliciting the personal and family history, drawing at a minimum a three-generation family pedigree using standardized uh, pedigree nomenclature with squares representing the males, circles representing the females, uh, indicating their uh, sex assigned at birth. But most recently, we actually modified these uh, pedigree nomenclature so that the squares and circles and now the diamonds actually represent the uh, individual's gender identity and then indicate the sex assigned at birth by including uh, assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth underneath. Once the pedigree is drawn, the genetic counselor would evaluate what they felt was most likely as the explanation for the clustering of cancer in the family. Does it look like these cancers are independent cancers uh, and thus sporadic? Does it look like there could be some familial clustering where there are multiple factors involved, both genetic and environmental risk factors, lifestyle risk factors? The genetic factors would consist of uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs that incrementally but collectively can increase or decrease a person's risk to develop cancer. As opposed to with hereditary cancer, we're looking for a mutation in a single cancer susceptibility gene that may be the major driving force, not that there aren't other factors involved, but the major driving force in why that individual developed cancer. The genetic counselors use a variety of risk assessment models to estimate the likelihood of carrying a mutation in one of these cancer susceptibility genes. Uh, I've included here uh, the PREM-5 model, which helps to estimate the likelihood that an individual would have one of the Lynch mutations. Uh, model incorporates information about relatives who have Lynch-associated cancers, the patient and whether or not they have Lynch-associated cancers, the ages at diagnosis, and how closely related those individuals are, to then generate a risk estimate. If the risk estimate is 2.5% or greater, that patient it should consider genetic testing. If the risk estimate is 5% or greater, it's recommended that they pursue genetic testing. There's a subtle difference there. In addition to the risk assessment models, we use a number of professional society guidelines to help determine whether a patient meets criteria to pursue genetic testing. So I've included here the hereditary renal cell carcinoma guidelines. If you look at the top, you can see, for example, that a patient with renal cancer at 46 years of age or younger would meet criteria, regardless of any additional family history, uh, if they have bilateral or multifocal tumors, or if they have a close relative in addition to their diagnosis with renal cancer. And then there are some family history criteria, there's some uh, histology criteria. Uh, It can be quite complex and you see, I mean you can't memorize these and they're changing all the time. If you notice here, this is version four of 2023 and we're only in April. We also discussed the three possible test results that we could find a mutation or what we call a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant which may inform medical management. We could get a completely normal test result in which case medical management would depend on the personal and family history that exists today. And we definitely need to prepare patients for the possibility that the laboratory could identify one or more variants of uncertain significance, what I call a gray answer that importantly does not influence medical management. I tell patients not to worry about these VUSs because they're very common. About 25 to 30% of patients who do large panels of genes will get at least one gray answer, and we know based on experience that 90% of them end up being downgraded to normal over time. So these should not influence medical management decisions. We also discuss what federal protections are available to protect against genetic discrimination, and we feel pretty comfortable about these protections when it comes to our health insurance and our employment. Notice that GINA not only protects against health insurance discrimination, but also employment discrimination. But importantly, we don't have any federal laws that protect against genetic discrimination when it comes to life insurance, long-term care, and disability insurance. So it's important for patients to appreciate before they pursue testing that if a mutation is found, it could make it more challenging, not only for them, but their relatives to get private life insurance, But on the other hand, this genetic information can be life-saving in that if we identify a genetic predisposition, it can inform medical management so that we have an opportunity to prevent cancer or detect it at an earlier stage. So each patient has to decide for themselves what drives their decision-making. Once all of those required elements of pretest genetic counseling are completed, we can then move forward with the testing if elected by the patient either by drawing a blood sample or getting a saliva or buccal uh, swab sample or if the patient has undergone an allogeneic stem cell transplant we need to get another tissue source usually a skin punch biopsy where we'll then need to culture those skin fibroblasts then do the dna extraction and then proceed to the testing unfortunately that creates a time lag of a good two or three weeks to culture the cells, so it's not really a good situation when you need to get those results on a stat basis. So part of the challenge in uh, meeting with patients and coordinating genetic testing is to figure out which lab is the right lab to send the sample to and which panel, how many genes uh, are appropriate to include on that panel. And it's so really complicated and difficult to stay up to date on all these laboratories, policies, and procedures that I can tell you we have a whole spreadsheet that we keep track of all the different genetics labs and what their current policies are. So I've included two fictitional labs to illustrate my point today. And then we look at a number of different patient-specific parameters. Does the patient have insurance? Uh, If they do have insurance, what type of insurance? So you can see here Lab A has a policy that uh, that patient is guaranteed zero out-of-pocket if they meet NCCN guidelines and their insurance company doesn't pay for the test for whatever fluke of a reason that they're not yet following NCCN guidelines whereas Laboratory B offers a zero out of pocket For specific types of insurances like Medicare or medical assistance if the insurance does not cover. So I can give patients peace of mind that they will not get a bill even if the insurance company is not going to cover the test. And we know Medicare is not set up to be preventative, so think of the situation where you have a daughter who was just identified to have a BRCA2 mutation, parents are of Medicare age, we need to figure out which side of the family the mutation came from, but Medicare will not cover the genetic test for those uh, parents to eliminate one half of the family from having to be concerned about that BRCA2 mutation. So there's currently a federal bill called the Reducing Hereditary Cancer Act. Uh, Wasserman Schultz is the one that's moving that forward to try to eliminate uh, that financial barrier for Medicare patients. Many of these labs have a patient assistance program. Uh, Some labs are more generous than other. Lab A actually goes up to 600% of the federal poverty level based on household income and family size. And if they make under that 600% level, six times the federal poverty level, they will drop the cost of the test to $100 out of pocket. So if I'm, for example, working with a patient that I know has a large unmet deductible or co-insurance, I switch over to that lab because I know then I can get the test for $100 as opposed to maybe sticking with another lab where I know uh, they're gonna get a price of about uh, $200, like an 80% discount off of a $1,000 contracted rate ends up being $200 there are some self-pay options two hundred and fifty dollars out-of-pocket they take a test that's billed at thousands of dollars the contracted rates roughly seven hundred and fifty to thousand dollars but if the patients paying self-pay it drops down to two hundred and fifty dollars to recoup the cost of the reagents and maybe make a little bit of profit or take a hit um, Each of these labs have different turnaround times uh, for their stat panels, and then it depends whether or not we're adding RNA analysis to the DNA testing RNA analysis is not yet standard of care, but it can ever so slightly make the testing more accurate or sensitive. It can help clarify splice site variants so that the patient never gets a VUS result, and they can clarify looking at alternative splice transcripts, whether there's any normal RNA transcripts present, and then use that information to determine if it's a normal variant, if it's uh, it's still a VUS, or if it's actually pathogenic. In addition, RNA analysis can, in rare situations, identify a deep intronic mutation that would be missed by DNA alone. So if we can get RNA, it's great, but it's not yet standard of care. If I want to get a gene that uh, a lab doesn't offer RNA for, but I need that gene because of their diagnosis, then I forgo the RNA and go for the panel that allows me to get that additional gene. Many of these labs have free reflex testing where you can upgrade your size of your panel within a defined period of time. That situation is when, for example, they don't find a mutation, maybe the patient didn't feel comfortable doing a large panel, they tempted the waters, the fate, they feel a little bit more comfortable and it came back negative and now they're ready to expand their panel, or possibly additional family history information became available in the meantime And the genes that you would want to evaluate based on that new information were not included on the original panel. So for anywhere from three to five months, you can upgrade that panel for free. And then some of these labs also offer free cascade testing. It's important to know the policy of the lab. Some of the labs will only offer free single site testing for the specific mutation. Some of the labs will look at the whole gene, but only the gene in which the familial mutations already been identified. And some labs will actually offer free panel testing of the same size that the original uh, relative pursued. And that's helpful when, for example, there could be other family history on the other side of the family where the mutation did not come from, you don't want to leave that side of the family unexplained for a sibling, because it's possible they could have inherited a mutation from that side of the family that the original individual did not. So you can't get false reassurance. You need to order the proper test for the person in front of you. So sometimes it might seem like bait and switch. We tell these patients, oh, your relatives can get free testing, but when we meet with them and evaluate the family pedigree, the better approach is for them to do a panel. And then when the test results come in, in the past, we used to meet in person to go over the results, that was our policy, but we've foregone you know, that a long time ago. Uh, we just have too many referrals and they're taking uh, those follow-up appointments, unfortunately, are making it more difficult to accommodate the new referrals. So we disclose all results out over the telephone. And then if it's positive, then we'll bring them back in for an in-person appointment or a Zoom appointment if that's what they prefer. We then use a number of different tools to help educate about the associated risks for cancer, the lifetime risks, this particular tool called Ask2Me. Uh, You can input the age of the patient, whether they're male or female, the specific gene that has the mutation, and it will generate a number of tables and bar graphs to illustrate uh, that lifetime risk for cancer, as well as how they travel through that risk over time in comparison to someone in the general population. And then we uh, let patients know what research opportunities they might be available um, to participate in, not only to further scientific knowledge, but also, for example, what I particularly like about the inherited cancer registry is if a patient does participate in that registry, it guarantees that they're going to get a newsletter twice a year that updates them about new developments in clinical cancer genetics. And then we put them in touch with various support resources, and in the interest of time, I'm not gonna go into detail about those, but know that they're available. Uh, It's a great way for patients to stay educated, to meet other families dealing with similar issues and to uh, learn a lot. So these next generation sequencing panels certainly have a lot of positive attributes. We can study multiple cancer susceptibility genes at the same time in a more cost-efficient manner. Uh, It also increases the likelihood that we could find more than one hereditary cancer syndrome in a family should more than one predisposition exist. And so I'm not sure how well these project whether you can see these uh, pedigrees or not but in this particular family, the proband who's indicated by the arrow was referred because he was diagnosed with an upper-track urethelial carcinoma. And when you look at the family history, you can see that the maternal side of the family does meet criteria to offer testing for Lynch syndrome. However, given the other types of cancers in the family, the breast cancer as well, it really is important that we not focus in specifically on Lynch syndrome, but we offer a whole panel of cancer susceptibility genes. And this uh, individual did end up having a large deletion involving Epcam, which is upstream of MSH2, and extending into the MSH2 two gene documenting his diagnosis of Lynch syndrome. I then met with his brother, who was diagnosed with a clear cell renal cell carcinoma with sarcomatoid features, and I explained to that brother that although we typically would only offer testing for that known mutation that's been identified, given that that type of renal cancer is not really classic for Lynch syndrome, and because of the family history of various cancers, it really would be better to offer him a large panel. And as it turns out, he did not have Lynch syndrome like his brother, but he did have a Uh, a low-penetrance pathogenic variant for CHECK2. Subsequent testing on the mother did confirm that both of those mutations originated from her side of the family. And in this family, um, this patient was diagnosed with colorectal cancer as a result of our universal screening program at Penn State Health. The tumor demonstrated absent MLH1 and PMS2 expression. There was no BRAF mutation to provide a possible sporadic explanation for the abnormal IHC expression. Uh, In meeting with the patient, she elected to do testing, initially, of MLH1 and PMS2 only. It came back normal, but given the family history of various cancers, she did then reflex up to a panel, and she was found to have not only an ATM mutation, but also a BRCA2 mutation. Interestingly, although I didn't know it at the time, her oncologist had ordered tumor profiling, and you can clearly see both of those germline mutations on the uh, tumor profiling report. So this is another reason why we might get referrals. Um, Many of these genes, uh, if they do have clinical relevance and importance if present in the germline those patients should be referred for germline testing now some of these labs are doing both uh... tumor and germline at the same time so in picking your labs and where you're sending samples you would want to take that into account if you would rather the one-stop approach the next-generation sequencing panels are all not good there are some uh... situations that arise Um, there's an increased likelihood of finding one or more variants of uncertain significance simply because of the sheer size of these panels, the fact that we might include some moderate and low-risk susceptibility genes that maybe we haven't been analyzing as long and haven't had as much time to figure out what those VUSs mean. In addition, although it's not mentioned on this slide, if we're testing someone who's not Western, Northern, European, Caucasian, uh, we do, you know, give them some advanced warning that they may have a higher chance of having VUS identified. Um, another potential downside of these next generation sequencing panels, and honestly for genetic testing in general, is that there can be conflicting interpretations of these variants between uh, laboratories and even within laboratories over time. So this particular patient I initially met with in 2012. She had a clinical diagnosis or von Hippel-Lindau syndrome uh, because of cerebellar hemangioblastoma. She also had a diagnosis of renal cancer. And we tested her for just VHL at the time. That was right around the time that we were switching over to panels, but not quite yet. And she did have a variant in VHL, which the laboratory classified as a VUS, but likely pathogenic. They just couldn't decide, so they decided to call it out as both. Um, 10 years later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was referred on a stat basis. The focus was a breast cancer stat panel uh, to inform surgical decision-making. It went to a different lab. That lab classified that same variant, which they also saw as a VUS realizing that I really hadn't, although I had provided them with the report from the initial lab, I had not provided them with all the phenotypic information related to VHL. So I contacted that uh, second lab, Lab B, and said, hey, by the way, here are all her VHL features. Does that change your interpretation of the, the variant? They then upgraded the variant to likely pathogenic. In the meantime, I contacted the first lab from 2012 and asked them for an updated interpretation of the variant, and they downgraded it to a straight VUS. So I think what this case illustrates is that you know, the hard part of this testing is not the sequencing. That's the easy part. It's the interpretation of these variants that is very challenging. And when we have situations like this where multiple labs are saying different things and even the laboratories themselves are changing their interpretations over time, it really undermines the confidence that we have in these laboratories. Um, but they have a hard uh, job to perform. In addition, uh, the cancer risks may not be well-defined for some of these genes. We may not know the spectrum of cancers or the lifetime risks to help that person make uh, medical management decisions. Guidelines might not be developed. We might get unexpected findings. For example, uh, we might find a CDH1 mutation in a patient that has no family history of gastric cancer or lobular breast cancer, and yet we're going to ask that patient to make a decision about whether or not they should have a prophylactic gastrectomy starting at 18 years of age when there's no family history of gastric cancer. Uh, We also can get secondary findings. We may find out that a patient is a carrier for a recessive disorder because these genes are on the panel. If they're present in a double dose, they, they do increase the risk for cancer. Uh, and sometimes patients may have a harder time wrestling with that result because it has reproductive implications, potentially for their children who may be of reproductive age, where if the, if the adult child has that uh, mutation, they may want to have their partner tested before entering into a pregnancy to see if they're at risk for that recessive disorder. And then the downright ugly, uh, where we have uh, likely pathogenic variants that are downgraded to a VUS after the patient pursues prophylactic surgery. And I have been in this situation three times in rather quick succession from one laboratory, which I think they got caught in the crossfire. They probably are still a good laboratory, but I stopped using them as a result. Um, Two of the patients had prophylactic BSOs. and the variant was downgraded to a VUS, uh, not at increased risk for ovarian cancer, and one of these patients pursued a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. Her testing was done because of a personal and family history of renal cancer. There was no family history of breast cancer. She pursued prophylactic surgery despite no family history, and then the variant was downgraded to a VUS. That doesn't mean it won't be upgraded again, but for right now, it's sitting at a VUS. Uh, Fortunately, for all three of these patients, they were actually still happy with their decisions. Um, But this is the situation we can find ourselves in. NCCN has developed prostate cancer guidelines, which I'm sure will be discussed by other individuals. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail other than to say every patient with high risk, very high risk, regional metastatic prostate cancer, regardless of any additional family history, would meet criteria. I'm going to skip over this. And the intercept study, one of your pre-course questions, Uh, This recent study out of the Mayo Clinic found that one out of eight patients, approximately 12 to 13% of patients with a solid tumor diagnosis had a germline mutation. Interestingly, 48% of them would not have qualified for testing based on NCCN guidelines. And interestingly, nearly a third of these patients who had a mutation in a high cancer susceptibility gene had their their modification to their surgery, their chemo, their immunotherapy, or they were enrolled in a clinical trial based on that genetic test result. So this study starts to pave the way for the introduction of universal germline genetic testing. And there's no way that the qualified genetics providers across the country can handle that onset of, of cases. So the genetic testing is going to transition to point of care in the clinic where you're all located to coordinate the testing, to provide some form of education up front, to order the testing and then to refer to the genetic counselor on the back end if a mutation is found. So, to try to bridge the gap until more of these primary care and specialty providers take on uh, ordering the testing themselves, genetic counselors have tried a number of alternative service delivery models, including group education counseling, disclosure of results over the phone, uh, and now looking into flipping the model where we provide videos or brochures or even chatbots to replace our education, provide the education upfront, and then the genetic counselor meets with the patient on the back end if they have a mutation. So in summary, although the majority of cancer is still considered to be sporadic, a growing number of cancers are identified to have a hereditary component using multi-gene next-generation sequencing panels. Indications for cancer genetic testing are expanding and may soon give way to universal germline genetic testing. Development of alternative service delivery models which leverage the time of genetic counselors may help to address the growing access issues regarding these services. Thank you.
3: Okay, so I'm covering a couple different uh, areas, and I'll just kind of expand upon that alternative models and share also my experience. Uh, we'll just skip over these running a little bit behind but alternative models as discussed um, you know we have a lot of challenges and when we're talking about whether someone should get tested we first have to understand um, you know do they have personal history do we have a a, a result that can be interpreted and um, do we have something that could influence medical management and asco has usually um, for the past several iterations of the guidelines says that uh, we should have informed consent for germline testing, which is an, a challenge uh, because it's not just a blood test, and a provider uh, who has no experience shouldn't just order uh, their Invitae panel uh, because they can get into trouble. Uh, patients need to have evaluation. They need to have uh, um, uh, pre-test counseling. We need to know what test to order. Uh, we also know how to, uh, uh, how to interpret the test, or we can make uh, significant errors. Uh, and then, obviously, getting uh, insurance coverage average. When I entered UCLA, a lot of providers were just ordering their own testing. And I used to be at Yale, and they had a whole series of patients who had uh, mastectomies, oophorectomies for VUSs. And that is just horrible if patients had an inappropriate uh, um, uh, interpretation. So uh, the problem is there's a lot of challenges to getting appropriate counseling. Uh, we talked about that uh, some insurances don't reimburse. Medicare doesn't actually recognize counselors as providers, which is really outrageous. Uh, and hopefully that will change with this bill in Congress. But but re- it's been introduced before and it's, it hasn't gotten anywhere in other, other, uh, other administrations. Uh, so this actually, if you have a practice and you want to hire your own genetic counselor, this obviously is, could be cost that you would eat. Um, And genetic counselors at some centers, when I was at Yale, I had 13 counselors, and I was in clinic with them in a a comprehensive program. I moved to UCLA, we have three counselors for the whole institution, uh, and that was like four or six months wait for some uh, things. So uh, it is something very challenging at some centers. Uh, And then testing that is done sometimes without counseling, uh, like such as tumor profiling, that could raise a whole uh, can of worms. And things are rapidly expanding, I would argue that no, busy urologic uh, uh, physician should have the uh, time to be familiar with all these complex uh, situations. Uh, So again, um You know, access is a barrier. Uh, There is telehealth, which has allowed, you know, people from afar to actually reach your internal counselors. And we have, you know, our our internal counselors reach out to people who don't want to travel two or three hours. But there are telehealth companies, and I've worked with several of these ones, Genome Health, Informed DNA, My Gene Council. When we actually got it a long wait, we actually would supplement our internal counselors with uh, these uh, uh, systems. And they offer, you know, a video platform, they arrange blood draws or saliva draws to go to your home. Um, And then sometimes they entice uh, with potentially free post-test counseling uh, so patients could potentially save money using uh, their lab. Uh, Now, just some methods. Everyone's familiar with the counselor based where you refer to the counselor and the counselor uh, will um, arrange the pre-test counseling and post-test counseling. But we mentioned there's other things, such as provider-initiated. You could learn, and there's some courses like the City of Hope course, which I'm uh, faculty on, where you can potentially do good pretest counseling, learn to make a pedigree, and then ordering the test, but then refer to a counselor on the back end. A provider-run clinic, I would really argue that that really should not be done in this era unless someone is a, a clinical geneticist or really has full-time access to really understand all the interpretation and, uh, uh, and um, Uh, and what should be done based on the post-test results. But then group-based, we've done counseling where patients come and they have a group session for like a common group of men with prostate cancer. Uh, That is less individualized, um, and unfortunately you can't really make pedigrees when you're in a group setting. And then the video-based, we have point-of-care prostate and pancreatic cancer, when someone would clearly meet NCCN guidelines, you can watch a video. Uh, if you guys uh, talk to you know Veda Giri, who's now at Yale, or Raul Concepcion, who he set up his own video-based services, something like that is feasible to try to do pretest counseling. So this is a, a, a work from VEDA who used to be at Jefferson's, now at Yale, where they did a randomized type of approach of video versus uh, um, a normal genetic counselor pretest evaluation, and they show there was similar kind of satisfaction. I would say for things like kidney or adrenal, where you have to actually show that it is, um, you know, is gonna be something uh, uh, that is gonna be covered by uh, like NCCN guidelines, this may not be that feasible for reimbursement. I would just show you what I did at UCLA where we had a very, you know, we didn't have enough counselors. So we partnered, we actually had patients in our clinic. We would refer to a telehealth company, but that was done in our clinic and patients would have video counseling, we had their blood drawn, and then the post-guest counseling was done either by, if they were negative, they had a nice video from me telling them you know, uh, the results, uh, and if it was positive, they'd meet with a genetic counselor, try to save uh, some money, and it was very, very uh, efficient, we're writing this up. So just going over, uh, moving forward to adrenal and renal, um, I'll just first touch on the adrenal syndromes. We basically split patients up into the chromafin tumors, which are the ones coming from the adrenal medulla, the the pheos and the paragangliomas, and then the adrenal cortical coming from the cortex. For our pheos, uh, pheos about, they're rare. They're 1,500 to 2,000 cases a year. They're about 5% of incidentalomas, and about one in every 5,000 patients who comes in with hypertension. Some of these are metastatic, and unfortunately, you don't know they're metastatic until they spread. Uh, So um, uh, a lot of these are metabolically active and we do recommend germline testing for all patients with a pheochromocytoma as 30 to 40% have germline alterations. Everyone's familiar with this textbook surgical recall, which has been wrong for the past 20 years. It says 10% are genetic, but it's about 40% now. Now, the ones that come uh, usually, they used to be called extra-adrenal pheos, but this name has changed to a paraganglioma, just to confuse everyone, but they're the same uh, type of tumor. But about, these are about 150 to 500 cases a year. 80% of these occur uh, in the abdomen and, and, um, and pelvis, but a lot of them also occur in the neck, and one in 2,000 bladder tumors actually will have um, Uh, uh, you know, be a paraganglioma. And this is something we see called micturation syncope, where patients will void and they'll end up having Uh, um, you know, symptoms. These can be functionally significant. The ones in the neck are parasympathetic. They're not active. The ones in the abdomen uh, are more more sympathetic and they um, are more secretory. About 30% of these can be uh, malignant and about 60% of these actually have a germline alteration. A lot of these are in the SDH family um, uh, and these patients should all get referred for genetic testing. And just a a paper we wrote a couple years ago um, with Dr. Linehan, we just kind of mapped out all the pathways, and these kind of all kind of of have overlapping uh, uh, pathways, Um, and um, a lot of these are tumor suppressors, but some are actually oncogenes. Now, um, just just a nice table, this is a table uh, summarizing them. They all differ a little bit in their risk of abdominal versus head and neck, malignant versus uh, 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 benign. I just tell you that when you hear the word SDHB, B is for bad, uh, and that is something which usually you worry about malignant potential. Uh, um, And SDHD, you worry about neck. Now, adrenal cortical cancer. This is something which most people are not familiar. That could have a genetic predisposition, and these are rare—two to 500 cases a year in the United States. And about five or 10% of these people uh, cases are occurring in children. These are large tumors. That's why we have size criteria to resect. Uh, about 60% are secretory, and then a lot of these patients—over half—are advanced stage, and the prognosis is really bad but about 10 to 15% of cases may be linked to a germline predisposition, uh, and early identification potentially could uh, save lives. So um, first things I would tell you is that any child with adrenal cortical carcinoma should get referred. There are things like Beckwith-Weidman or hemihypertrophy or Li-Fraumeni. About 50% of the children do have a genetic predisposition. Uh, and then I will tell you that some patients, there's a really fascinating founder mutation. It's just in Brazil two weeks ago and talked to their uh, um, geneticist there. There's a founder mutation um, uh, in p 53 called R337. Uh, and we'll go through it later. But some of these patients, you know, if they're Brazilian, they may actually know that that they have uh, family members with this, uh, and or other patients who might know they have Lynch syndrome could get found with adrenal cortical tumors. So many experts, including our good friend Tobias Carling at Michigan feels that every patient should get genetic uh, uh, testing. I'll say that I believe, and a lot of people believe that every patient should at least have genetic risk assessment, meaning they should be considered, look at their family history, do they have maybe at risk for Lee-Fraumeni or Lynch syndrome? I don't think every patient must get genetic testing, but you should at least be thoughtful when you see these patients, and, and when in doubt, I think you should refer. Now, this is about that Brazilian variant. Super fascinating. One in 300 uh, people in southern Brazil actually have this TP53 variant. I've actually seen two Brazilian uh, patients in my practice, and I screened them, and I found uh, lesions, and we actually resected them, and they were kind of uh, uh, in that gray area. There were 3-centimeter tumors, and you wouldn't normally resect, but they were actually tumors. Um, And there's actually a second variant, which is called XAF1, a paper in science last year, which is a modifying gene which affects risk here. But 1 in 300 Brazilians in southern Brazil may be at risk, and they have, like, a Lee-Fraumeni-type syndrome. Um, Just looking at the patients who can give ACCs, this genes, again, Lynch syndrome uh, and Lee-Fraumeni are the biggest uh, risk factors. These other ones are kind of loosely associated, not really great evidence, MEN1, uh, FAP Beckwith-Weidman, NF1. uh, Those, I'd say, are kind of not really strongly linked, but they've seen maybe a slight enrichment in cases. Now, moving on to kidney, uh, we've long said 2 to 8% of kidney cancers are genetic or hereditary. As a fellow under Dr. Linehan, I try to figure out, well, where did that come from? And it came from him citing his paper, then citing his paper, then citing his paper, and it was really not supported by any evidence, just you say something long enough, people will believe you. Um, but about 15 conditions now, 15 genes are associated with RCC, uh, and there's a really strong inheritance pattern. If you look at, like, twin studies, as Tong mentioned, uh, and registries. There's a lot of, Mark Perdue, who's a, who is an epidemiologist, has done a lot of things on risk alleles, and they may be moving to a polygenic score like prostate cancer, and his work that is actually emerging that you potentially have a lot of enrichment looking at these multiple genes. And the surgical and systemic approach may be dictated by the presence of some of these hereditary genes. Now, unlike the adrenal lesions, if you refer to everything to your genetic counselor, they'll probably not be you know, too upset with you. but they're 35 times more kidney tumors than adrenal. So you have to be selective, you can't just refer everything, or your genetic counselor's weight will go from two months to two years, and your genetic counselor will probably be very angry with you, I'm sure. Um, Now, a lot of this has come from, you know, my mentor, uh, Dr. Linehan, a lot of other people who, you know, uh, were in this area. The way they mapped all these genes, they flew a lot of patients to the NIH on your taxpayer dollar and started doing um, sequencing of the affected and unaffected family members. But a lot of these cases, when you see clinically, they may be hiding, and they may be not so um, apparent. And if you don't look for it, you won't find it. Um, And when we have a wonderful, you know, 20 different WHO-recognized subtypes, really only two of them are really listed here that obviously you'd think to have a strong genetic predisposition. We have now a category called SDH-deficient renal cell or FH-deficient renal cell, but that only accounts for two of the the conditions. A lot of the ones are gonna be in this family. These are cases that you'd think are sporadic. But if you actually did germline testing, you might find some genes in these. So clear cell, you know, VHL, SDHC, BAP1. These are you know ones that you see. We don't call things type one or type two anymore. But the ones that are type one, formerly known, the artist formerly known as type one, uh, MET, uh, uh, P10. I've actually also seen some BAP1. Uh, so some of these genetic forms can resemble the uh, hereditary forms. Um, I've seen a lot of tuber sclerosis patients recently that have this low-grade oncocytic. Uh, with a germline mutation. So again, these subtypes, it doesn't scream and say this is hereditary unless you're in that SDH uh, deficient or the FH deficient. So we have very well-defined syndromes which differ by incidence and their other manifestations. Pretty much every single one of these will have other features other than this crazy hereditary papillary renal cell, which is an oncogene. It's in every cell in the body, but for some reason they only get Kidney cancer—it's an activated uh, uh, the MET receptor—and they only get kidney cancer. I don't know why, uh, but uh, the, these conditions are actually more common than you'd think, uh, and I'll explain why. Uh, we actually, uh, when I was in New Haven, everyone said you can't study HLRCC leaving the NIH. So rare. It's so rare—it's one in two hundred thousand. Well, New Haven is a city of 130,000 people, and I had 30 families in Connecticut in a matter of five years, so we said this is pretty common. So we looked at exact 1,000 genomes, and lo and behold, a database from Invitae, we think probably this is about 1 in 2,000 people. And you might think I'm crazy, but Geisinger, which is a very uh, amazing health system where they've done a ton of sequencing, um, uh, and they actually looked at folliculin loss of function, folliculin causes bird hog dubay, they think 1 in 3,500 people are walking around with hog hogg bay syndrome. Again, if you don't image, how do you know you have a lung cyst? Do you know how many people don't go to the doctor because they have a funny-looking bump on the side of their nose? So these conditions are more common, and if you don't look for it, you don't find it. Now, if you look at what's the incidence in patients who actually have gone for germline testing, these are many series, one from uh, Marie uh, and uh, another one I think Hong was on. Uh, basically, if you send patients who are early onset bilateral, multifocal, you potentially will be enriched. But as you see here, the, uh, these enriched cohorts, about maybe 4 to 6% will have a uh, hereditary gene uh, associated with kidney cancer. But if you look at an expanded panel, besides seeing variants of unknown, Significance, you might find a lot of other genes. I've a lot of patients who've been found with BRCA1, BRCA2. Well, it's maybe not associated with their kidney cancer, which because they're maybe an Ashkenazi uh, Jewish uh, a pa- a patient. So these enriched cohorts, they're definitely a little bit biased. But we've also seen some of the other genes like check 2 I'd say Maria's paper really, really giving great evidence that check 2 is a, really a kidney cancer uh, gene. Uh, and some of these other ones are not uh, clear. There's a cohort from UK which looks at a consecutive series of a couple thousand patients and they think it's probably more in that four to six range and about maybe three percent of all comers are associated with hereditary uh, kidney cancer Uh, red flags to consider again we don't really have great consensus guidelines we have some guidelines uh, and things like early age of onset bilaterality multifocal strong family history uh, or other specifics uh, histology may guide you now it's been really We've had crappy guidelines uh, previously. We have the American College of Medical Genetics. We've had AUA guidelines. And it's really been really poor. And we tried to come up with a, a consensus conference a couple of years ago where we tried to kind of get uh, um, everyone's thoughts and came up with this publication. And then uh, there's been some new updates. So I, I you know, Maria has done a great job with, you know, the, the NCCN guidelines led by Dr. Motser and Yonash really saw the need for this. So we have updated the past two years, uh, hereditary guidelines and the AUA has adopted it. Um, I will tell you, we just had a second genetic consensus conference, and we have had, you know, some consensus on some other areas. Um, you know, um, Hong has a paper looking at early onset. If you have only clear cell and you're age like 43, the incidence of finding a germline mutation there is actually zero percent in that series. So, you know, it's, this is a living document, and we'll continue to get more um, guidelines. but it's not going to be like prostate or pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic test cancer, you test all. A prostate cancer we have guidelines risk groups those are your test kidney is going to be kind of you know really needing to do a pedigree and figure things out Finally, just quickly, one of the reasons why it's important, we have a new drug for VHL. VHL is a condition which is you know, one in 25,000. It's very penetrant. 90% of our patients have a family history. Uh, and it's very highly morbid with a lot of patients going for uh, lots of surgeries. And uh, the holy grail, everyone's been hoping, is to have medical management. And you see that it's a multi-organ condition. Everyone's familiar with the kidney cancer. It affects the eyes, the brain, the spine, the pancreas, the adrenal, uh, uh, the kidney, and also the reproductive organs. And this is the LightSpark study. Uh, um, It was a study looking at 61 patients. It was open really for a four-month enrollment. It was amazing that they enrolled 61 patients in four months. And they basically gave everyone Wellareg or Belzutafan. It's a HIF2 inhibitor. You lose VHL you have upregulation of HIF-1, HIF-2, and then downstream, you have upregulation of VEGF. So instead of using a TKI downstream, this is hoping to target the pathway upstream, right under VHL. And um, just going back, if you look, this is when patients had tumors they were being watched, then they started therapy, and most of these patients had either stable disease or had reduction in the size. And looking at the updated series, in terms of the resist response, tumor shrinkage by 30%, RCC 60% response rate, pancreatic neuroendocrine 90%, and there's some complete responses. Um, so in this patient population, you can say, hey, you can have a Whipple, or you may have a one in six chance of having a complete response to, to Wellareg. It's a very well tolerated drug. Uh, and just this is uh, just showing before the trial, all these patients, surgery, 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 they start on therapy, very quiet. Okay, so this is very exciting for these patients who a lot of them are, uh, can't work, they, ne- they need to see so many doctors, they have so many operations they need. It's well tolerated, uh, about 10% of patients have uh, um, adverse events from grade three um, anemia. There's very few patients who have hypoxia, one of 61 patients. I give the drug, I you know, have had no issue giving it. Um, fatigue is common. Uh, I have my patients measure their pulse oximetry um, and uh, I've had, uh, you, uh, you know, patients being able to avoid surgery, uh, and it's been very great. It was approved in August 2021, um, and, um, you know, this is a, a, an article we wrote, you know, HIF2 inhibition for VHL, will urology lead or follow? Uh, I would say, you know, in, in specialized centers, uh, urologists, you know, see these patients, medical oncologists can see these patients, neuro-oncologists, endocrinologists, but it's a very well-tolerated drug, and if at your center you're seeing these patients, I feel that, you know, all these different providers may be able to To give this drug because it's so well tolerated, Um, and we'll just skip over this because I know we're behind. Okay.
0: Okay. Questions are later. Questions later. (laughs) So I'll be shifting gears a little bit to talking about urothelial carcinoma and germline genetic considerations in that disease. I'm a medical oncologist and I also see patients in my clinical genetics uh, clinic. So I'll start with a case that you may see as a urologist. Um, A 42-year-old woman presents with gross hematuria. She has imaging that shows a four centimeter mass um, in the right renal pelvis. She has surgery and the pathology shows urethelial carcinoma. So the typical urology note says, no family history of GU malignancies, but you are very thorough. Um, and you note know that her mom had a hysterectomy for unclear reasons. She also has colon polyps. She had a grandfather that died at age 45 of colon cancer and other, an uncle that died of some other type of cancer. So shifting gears a little bit, now you think about, well, what should I do with this woman? So we talked about other um, um, methods for getting genetic testing but just the basics of what what you wanna get or, or what you see in clinic. So number one is a germline panel. This is what we've been talking about. They take a blood saliva sample, they analyze it for mutations in certain cancer genes and you get a result. More and more, I see in clinic, and you probably see too, tumor profiling, this is they take a little piece of the tumor, they sequence it, um, and then you get a report with all the mutations and other information such as whether the tumor has high microsatellite instability, tumor mutation burden. You just should know what your assay is telling you. So the important question is, do you, are you subtracting the germline? And that's easy to know because you send it, the tumor plus a blood or saliva sample. If you just sent the tumor, the tumor is going to reflect the tumor plus the germline. And I think Maria gave a good example of that, that she had that profile that had a BRCA2 mutation, but you didn't know if it was just in the tumor or also germline. And then there's this great, I'm not going to get too into details because it's confusing even for us that see this every day, but there's also cell free DNA. Cell-free DNA can also be run match. It can also inadvertently um, reveal the germline. So you just have to be careful with interpretation of results. Some companies are good and they tell you, they flag you, you know, this looks suspicious for the germline, some companies may not. So just, you know, be aware of your your, um, assay and you can always talk to your genetics group and they can help you with that. Some also tell you something called the VAF, which is the variant allele frequency, so you have a heterozygous mutation, you expect it to be 50%, and that can give you a sense that this is something germline, and that's what the companies use, right? Like If they have a 50% variant allele frequency, they flag it for germline in some cases. So back to the case, you send this woman for genetic testing um, because she was young with upper tract urothelial cancer, and she had a family history. Um, and she came back with an MSH6 germline mutation, a pathogenic variant. So I'm going to spend most of the talk here talking about what you're going to see as a urologist in your urothelial cancer patients, and that's Lynch syndrome. By far the most common genetic um, condition in patients with bladder and upper tract cancer. So this is called, and many of um, the other speakers have already um, uh, talked a little bit about Lynch. It used to be called um, HNPCC, Hereditary Non-Polyposis Cancer Syndrome. That's the old term, and that really is because it's not just colon cancer. It's upper tract, it's your, it's um, uterine, it's stomach. So now the preferred term is, it's one of those weird that we went back to the name. Now I know most cases we're trying to go away from the name, but um, this honors Dr. Lynch who described the syndrome. It is autosomal dominant. Almost all patients have a family history, right? So it's not recessive. You have a parent who has a parent, and it's rarely de novo. Unlike VHL, with well, about 10 to 20% of patients may be the first in the family of VHL. With Lynch syndrome, you almost always have a family history. The hallmark cancers are really colorectal and endometrial. So if you're seeing a urethelial cancer patient, really the question is not, what other GU cancers are in the family, you should ask anybody with colon cancer or uterine cancer or any other cancers, but really that's what you want to ask about. Similarly, if you see a prostate patient, you really want to ask breast or ovarian cancer in the family. I don't care if you have kidney and prostate because those don't go together, uh, but I know that's what you know. we are all taught to ask. And really the main evidence is that l- Um, Renal, pelvis, and ureter urothelial carcinoma are linked to Lynch. Um, And we think about 5% of UC is thought to be in the setting of Lynch syndrome. This may be an underestimate. The studies are not great, so it's really kind of a rough estimate. But again, about 5% of your upper tract patients um, are estimated to have Lynch syndrome. And of course this varies if you have an older gentleman who's had bladder cancer and then upper tract less likely if you have a 42 year old with a renal pelvis tumor that's a lot more suspicious this is so again we've coded the national comprehensive cancer center um, networks nccn guidelines that's what we use in our genetics clinic that's what a lot of insurance companies base their reimbursement on so this is why we're I'm mentioning these, but these are kind of the cancer risks. So, somebody who has Lynch syndrome um, through age 80, uh, this is the rate of or the risk of renal pelvis or ureter cancer. And and see those. It's funny because it's uh well, your risk is two to 28 percent. Um, And the reason that is such wide variability is because the studies are not great, they're all small. So this is kind of a study, one study showed 28%, another showed 2%. There's not great evidence, and I'll go through it a little bit more. The important thing to take away from this slide is that the MSH2 positive patients are by far at the highest risk of urothelial cancer. Um, PMS2, very low. Here you see the risk in the population. We don't even know exactly what the risk of the population for upper tract cancer is for many reasons, but just MSH2 should be in your mind as somebody who's very high risk. So screening for Lynch syndrome, who should you send for further assessment? Um, So for patients who come into your clinic, I guess with any type of cancer really colorectal and uterine cancer at early age of onset which is roughly below age 50 should raise a a red flag if your patient has upper tract plus a personal history of colon uterine also other cancers like stomach um, also raise a red flag and consider for further assessment and then i think this is going to become much more prevalent in the future whether you have a tumor assessment your tumor is mismatch repair protein deficient on immunohistochemistry or microsatellite instability high so this is being done more commonly Um, the mismatch repair staining is just an ihc stain for the for the proteins they usually do it for all four proteins at once um, MLH, um, these are complexes, so you're usually missing two. So you're um, MSH1, uh, MLH1, PMS2, absent. Um, that doesn't mean you have a mutation in both. They're just a complex. So if you're missing one, you miss the other. Um, but if your tumor is mismatch repair deficient, Or they do another, um, if you have a a mutation in one of the Lynch genes, essentially you're not good at repairing um, DNA repeats, so you get this microsatellite instability. This is the old school way to do the test, now you do it with NGS. But then you get in your tumor report, MSI high, MSI low. So MSI high is a a, um, hallmark of Lynch syndrome. And here's a little diagram. So you may remember, I'm not even going to go through the Amsterdam or Bethesda. I don't even know them myself. I have to go every time. Um, But if you do MSI by NGS on your tumor, you're going to capture most of your patients with Lynch. Many of them will have this sporadically. It doesn't mean everybody with MSI high or mismatch repair has Lynch syndrome, but you're going to capture a good amount, much more than if you go by the Bethesda or Amsterdam. So say you're in clinic, your patient with upper tract or bladder cancer had tumor sequencing and they came back with a profile that says you're MSI high. And you're reading the report, so now actually um, the guidelines are if you have any tumor, bladder, prostate, whatever, that is MSI high or mismatch repair deficient, that's an automatic referral to genetics for testing for Lynch syndrome. And this is the reason, so this was a paper published, um, I came out from Sloan Kettering a few years ago, where we took thousands of thousands of patients who had had MSI testing of the tumor, then we went back to everybody who had had MSI high and we looked at the germline. And here's the chance that if you have bladder or urothelial, again, these are MSI high patients, what are the chances that you have Lynch syndrome? 38%, 38%, so very high, and it was actually the highest cancer. So if you had colorectal cancer and you were MSI high, your chances of having Lynch syndrome were 19%. So if you had endometrial cancer, MSI high, your chances of having Lynch syndrome were just 6%. And That's because there's a lot of sporadic MSI high tumors, but in bladder and urothelial, it appears to be more common to be um, Lynch syndrome related. So red flag, MSI high in both bladder or urothelial send to automatically to genetics for, for testing. And warn them, right? Don't say, oh, this is a test you should, it's important. So why don't we just screen all upper tract? And my, I have not read them, but I heard that the new AUA guidelines for upper tract may be advocating for universal testing of upper tract for um, either MSI status or mismatch repair. This is standard of care for all colorectal and uterine cancers to do one of these types of testing. So why not do it in an upper tract? It's a good question. So if you... Some other people have tried to do this in small case series, and they pick up a good amount of lynch syndrome, so, for example, this case series picked up five percent were confirmed to have lynch syndrome, but just plugging in the numbers, you know you have one hundred and fifty thousand colorectal cases sixty six thousand uterine cases. you do MSI testing um, in all of them that 's standard of care uh, for pathologists, and you only pick up you know three percent of them have lynch syndrome. If you did that for all upper tracts, much smaller numbers, and we think you know only six to 10% are MSI high and 5% are gonna have Lynch, so it seems cost-effective to me, but see, maybe the AUA agrees this year, we'll see. Uh, apparently they came out yesterday. Now, this is definitely an area where we need a lot more evidence and help from urologists who are seeing these patients. We have very poor guidelines of what to do with somebody who has never been diagnosed with urothelial cancer who has Lynch syndrome. How do they screen? This is what the NCCN says, and it's very wishy-washy because there's no evidence. So there's no clear evidence to support surveillance for urothelial cancers in Lynch. Maybe considered in some. Again, the MSH2 are at high risk, especially males. Surveillance options. Essentially, they don't recommend anything in particular or when to start. You can do a urinalysis, maybe age 30. However, there's insufficient evidence to recommend one strategy. And there are several um, uh, not cons- consensus papers, um, opinion papers. Some of them say screen all Lynch syndrome for a urinalysis. Uh, with cytology, with CT, some say only at age 50. I think um, hopefully there will be a little bit more guidance from societies um, in the future. We personally um, have everybody do a urinalysis analysis starting depending, you know, 20s, 30s, so a yearly urinalysis. Year analysis. If there's blood, automatic referral to urology. Personally, if I see any MSH2 families, um, uh, and they have a family history of urothelial, I refer to a urologist who's well-versed in Lynch syndrome. They do usually CT urogram. In many patients, they do cystoscopy for surveillance. If they have MSH2 in a very small family, where I can't tell, you know, if you, have a strong fa- you have no family history because you're an only child and, you know, your parents are only children, I also sometimes consider referring those. But again, there's no guidelines of what to do or how to do it. So what about bladder cancer? Are your lynch syndrome patients at increased risk of bladder cancer? Probably, but certainly the risk, you know, upper tract is a definitely a lynch associated cancer. Bladder maybe. And the problem is, you know, as you know as urologists, you know, you can get drop meds, you can get upper tract and then bladder in a lynch patient. Well it was the bladder cancer, you know, a de novo cancer a result of the upper tract. So um there's a couple of registries showing that there is apparently some increased risk for bladder cancer with msh2 carriers but again that risk um is lower than for you know it ends up being higher because bladder cancer is more common but it's definitely not as strongly associated so um shifting gears a little bit about how we think as oncologists for patients with lynch syndrome and you see so this was Um, A paper we did a couple of years ago, and this is just case examples in our practice, but it was a couple of Lynch patients that we observed that you know, this is their baseline um, tumors, and then they got neoadjuvant, or um, they, they were already metastatic, so they got systemic chemotherapy. They had zero response to chemotherapy, but then they got PD-1 inhibitors, and then they had amazing responses. So this really makes oncologists think, well, should we even be giving chemo to Lynch patients with UC? Should we just start with immune therapy? Um, And it's a good question, and it became a much more urgent question when this paper came out last year that made a huge splash in the news. This was um, an investigator-initiated trial that ended up in the New England Journal with 16 patients, so you know the results are incredible. And the results were incredible. These were patients with mismatch repair deficient locally advanced rectal cancer. So instead of surgery, they went to PD-1 inhibitor and they were all complete responses. So it makes you think, well, would that be the same? Could you spare an ephraeurectomy in a patient with Lynch syndrome, giving them um, PD-1 inhibitors? So we don't know the answer. There are ongoing clinical trials. This is a very small one given a couple of doses of Ipeneva that was presented that showed, again, these were just a couple of doses and then all patients went to surgery. There were at least three patients with Lynch syndrome who seemed to get good responses. This isn't going, this is not standard of care yet, but um, we will wait and see. What about other germline variants in UC? So we looked at our own at MSK again. A lot of our patients participate in the MSK Impact, where we do paired germline and tumor testing. Most patients consent to have their germline. Um, revealed and, and they discussed this with us. So these were um, patients with urothelial cancer, bladder, or upper tract. We found a good percent of them had a germline mutation in a cancer gene. And then a lot of these had BRCA and BR, BRCA1 and BRCA2. These are the patients with Lynch syndrome in our cohort. And here you can see that red is upper tract, so the Lynch syndrome patients were almost all upper tract. Uh, But then what about BRCA1 and BRCA2? That was pretty high. So we looked, um, and actually BRCA2 came out, and and we corrected because we also have a lot of patients um, of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry um, in our center, so we corrected for the known founder mutations. And it appeared that there was a slightly increased risk of urothelial carcinoma and BRCA2 carriers. I would argue that this is still not yet definitive. Um, this was another study um, out of the Farber where they did, again, a large cohort of patients who, were, who had testing via commercial lab. They found similar results, so to be seen. Other large BRCA studies have not shown a particularly high risk of bladder cancer. That's why there's still a little bit of conflicting data, but possibly. And then kind of switching a little bit into therapy, so we know BRCA-positive patients with breast, ovarian, pancreas, prostate respond very well to PARP inhibitors. How about patients with urothelial cancers and mutations in BRCA and other genes? So there's ongoing studies. These are the three that were first reported that are honestly showing mixed results, but what seems to be encouraging results for those with hormone, with homologous recombination defects. So even though, for example, the Bayou study tested Olaparib um, in first-line platinum ineligible patients, um, there was longer PFS in the Olaparib group, 5.8 months versus 1.8 months. So people are interested. They're still, again, not standard of care. So um, studies are ongoing to, to confirm this. So, in summary, Lynch syndrome is associated with increased risk of upper tract, likely bladder, and again, MSH2 mutation carriers are by far at the highest risk. We definitely need better data to get how to screen these patients for UC. They're kind of all over the place, um, and guidance would be helpful for clinicians. There's possible UC increase with some germline DNA rapid uh, damage repair mutations like BRCA2, that's still to be seen. And again, I think the future for UC will be that a lot of people get tumor testing and then therapy will probably depend on what the tumor shows, so they're MSI high, they may be candidates for immunotherapy or potentially PARP inhibitors or other trials.
1: Thank you, Marie, and uh, our last section today will be um, about genetic and genomic evaluation of patients with prostate cancer. Now, for prostate cancer, there, um, there is a little bit more guideline in terms of the use of genetic evaluation. So for this talk, you know, I will answer four questions. Which patient with prostate cancer should undergo genomic profiling? Which patient with prostate cancer should undergo germline genetic testing? And there is very clear guideline. How should we screen for prostate cancer in patients with germline mutation? And how should we treat prostate cancer in patients with germline mutation? So uh, to begin, uh, you know, the, the first issue is what is the difference between germline mutation and somatic mutation? So germline mutation originates in the reproductive cell, the, the egg or the sperm. Patient can uh, inherit it from one of their parents. It is hereditary. Now, there is a small proportion of um, germline mutation that is the novel. So something happened in the egg or the sperm um, you know, before uh, fertilization, and that uh, starts being integrated into all di- deployed cells in the body. And uh, the tissue used for testing for germline mutation is typically uh, blood, uh, or buccal mucosa saliva, buccal swab. Now, somatic mutation arises within the cancer, um, uh, you know, prostate, kidney, um, urothelial, that is not uh, in the reproductive cell. It is not hereditary. Uh, the patient cannot pass that mutation to their children. And it may be present in some or all of the cancer cells, and you test for that with cancer tissue at the primary or metastatic uh, tissues. And in the context of prostate cancer, germline mutation can predict risk of cancer development. Somatic mutation cannot. Germline and somatic mutation can guide treatment approach, and both can define cancer prognosis. There are a number of clinical genomic and genetic tests um, used in prostate cancer, and uh, Dr. Carlo touched on this um, in her talk. So in, first is the germline genetic testing, uh, and this look for inherited cancer syndrome. There are a number of uh, testing companies that you can use in MIRA, Gene DX, colour. They look for mutation in cancer's acceptability genes, and they can also de- use, be used to determine the use of BOP inhibitor immunotherapy or even clinical trial in advanced stages. Uh, they guide cancer screening and preventions, and they can lead to cascade testing. Tumor genomic profiling look specifically for alteration in the prostate tumor itself. There's tumor DNA sequencing versus gene expression analysis Tumor uh, DNA sequencing include things like foundation medicine and Keras. And a lot of these tumor sequencing does not do pair germline testing. So if a patient has a mutation on tumor testing, you cannot tell if it belongs to the patient or it belongs to the cancer. But they can be used to guide systemic therapy. Um, and um, uh, for gene expression analysis, this is probably a lot used a lot by urologists in uh, decision for, to decide whether to biopsy, whether to treat, and it's used for risk stratification for clinically localized disease. It can be used as prognostic biomarker to predict distant metastasis, prostate cancer, specific mortality, or adverse pathology. So to illustrate the point of, you know, a mutation maybe a tumor or germline, uh, when I was a fellow at Memorial, we looked at over 18,000 patients with prostate cancer who underwent pair-prostate normal sequencing, and we asked ourselves, if a tumor is found, what is it likely to be? Which, uh, which gene should we prioritize for uh, uh, confirmatory germ testing? And as you can see, TP53 and P10 are very common in men with prostate cancer, as high as almost 30%. But the majority of them, if not all of them, are actually uh, somatic. It's a rise from the prostate cancer. Now, there are genes like BRCA2, um, you know, b 2 uh, BRCA1. That There are higher uh, likelihood of germline variant. I believe BRCA2 was almost uh, 60, uh, or BRCA1 actually is almost 60% uh, in the germline. And then there's some of them that are actually both germline and somatic. Um, so uh, the, the point here is that you know there's really no way to know, and the only way to confirm is to do germline genetic testing. Now, I'm sure you have heard about you know, these genes that are moderate penetrance, high penetrance, low penetrance. What does that all mean? Um, so that refers to the cancer predisposition risk compared to people without the germline mutation. So first is the high penetrance gene. These are quite rare, but when the patient have it, they have much higher risk of cancer development, uh, greater than five times the risk of the, someone without a mutation. And these are your typical P53 many syndrome, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation. The moderate penetrant genes are the ATM, the check 2 That when you uh, send a patient for sequencing, sometimes you can incidentally file this mutation. That's not necessarily the causative um, mutation in the patient cancer development, but they confer about two to four percent, uh, uh, two to four times the risk of cancer development compared to someone without a mutation. And one thing that uh, needs probably. Need to be updated is that the uh, the B here here is actually, uh, you know, a lot of people would argue that they actually are high penetrant genes, and they not they they no longer moderate penetrance based on what we know. And lastly, there is the low penetrance genes uh, that can also refer to the things like single nucleotide polymorphism, where probably one in five of us here in the room carried it, and it's have a very a lower risk of cancer, slightly increased, but still low. And so, most utility in germline genetic testing is in identifying the moderate and high penetrance genes, and uh, the 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 utility of testing for uh, you know low penetrance mutations is, is debatable at this point. So now, uh, so this is a question uh, for the audience, and, you know, I, I don't have the, the, the uh, answer system, so maybe just a raise of hand. A 70-year-old man with metastatic prostate cancer had tumor sequencing of his metastatic rectoperitoneal lymph node. The test report showed that a PRCA2 pathogenic variant was found without knowing more, which is the best description of this variant? A germline mutation? Anyone? B, somatic mutation, C, this mutation may be germline or somatic in the origin, and D, this mutation is both germline and somatic since it's found in the metastatic lesion. Uh, Oh, so that is actually the answer. Uh, So the answer is C, this may be germline or somatic. We don't know. We need confirmatory germline testing. So, now who to test? The criteria for germline testing can be based on prostate cancer alone without knowing anything about the patient's personal or family histories. And uh, one of that is patient with localized high risk, a very high risk prostate cancer. So, what do I mean? So, high risk patients are those with cancer spread beyond the, the prostate uh, with extracapsular extension, bladder neck invasion, seminal vesicle invasions, are those with grade group four or grade group five prostate cancer, so total Gleason eight or higher. And then in, in the NCCN guideline, they also include the PSA level, operated in 20. Now, you know, as urologists, we know that there are patients with humongous prostate uh, with high PSA and low Gleason six, uh, you know, Gleason six cancer, and you know you may argue that those patients are not technically high risk but they are by psa level and high risk is you know the the additional um other features Every patient with no positive disease, we see, we see some of these patients now with increasing use of PSMA scan or metastatic prostate cancer need to undergo germline genetic evaluation because the frequency of uh, germline mutation in this patient population is very high, and we'll talk about the specific proportion later. And in addition to germline testing, they also qualify based on the NCCN guideline for tumor uh, somatic testing. Uh, and but per the NCCN guideline, metastatic biopsies is preferred um, over primary uh, tumor sequencing. And the, the point for this is to look for DNA repair genes, microsatellite stability, and mismatch repair deficiency to guide additional systemic therapy. Now, beyond that, if patient doesn't meet criteria based on prostate cancer alone, the, the guideline is to perform a detailed personal uh, history, obviously any man with a history of breast cancer really raise suspicions for BRC mutations and they, did, they need to be referred for uh, genetic evaluations. Other include history of pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, upper tract, urethral carcinoma, glioplastoma, biliary tract and small intestinal cancer. So pretty much looking for heredit- the Lynch syndrome or hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. And family history, um, Askenazi Jewish ancestry and uh, history of prostate cancer uh, meet the guideline for referral. Known family history of familial cancer risk, um, such as the, these genes highlight here. If a patient have a father or brother with uh, prostate cancer diagnosed before the age of 60, they meet referral criteria. So if a patient, you know, 50 year old gentleman with prostate cancer and fat, reported father with family history of uh, f- father with cancer diagnosed at 50. That patient uh, actually do meet referral criteria as well. A multiple family member uh, with the uh, history of prostate cancer or regional metastatic disease, and greater than three cancer on the same side of the family, especially diagnosed uh, earlier than age 50. So what genetic tests to order? Um, so this figure I like because it kind of showcased the uh, heterogeneity and the different genetic tests available. Now, this was back in 2020. I think a lot of the panel tests now include much more than, you know, lab number five or lab number nine, right? Very few labs include four or five genes anymore. But the point is that the germline multi-gene panel testing should at least include BRCA1, 2 mutation, ATM, BALB2, cec 2 hoxb 13 and the Lynch syndrome genes with our MLH1, MSS2, MSS6, and PMS2. Now, these are not all the genes that need to be included. If there's additional family history suspicious for other other um, hereditary cancer syndrome, that need to be included as well. And this is a uh, table that shows the prevalence of germline mutation in different prostate cancer population. So the first column are the general populations, and even, even in patients without cancer diagnosis, you know there was about two two to three percent with germline mutations. Um, and I actually summarized this in a uh, you know easier to read format. So no cancer diagnosis is about two. low intermediate risk prostate cancer have been reported to be as high as four to five percent. High risk localized prostate cancer is five to nine percent and no positive or metastatic prostate cancer. We're looking at 12 to 17% uh, with germline mutation. What are the features of hereditary prostate cancer? So these patients, we're going to go through some of these data. uh, a patient with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 have higher risk of developing prostate cancer. The risk is higher in BRCA2 than BRCA1 carrier. They tend to have early onset prostate cancer. They tend to have aggressive phenotype, um, Gleason 8 or higher at the time of diagnosis, more a disease. And in the, uh, in the setting of primary treatment, they tend to have lower cancer-specific survival. So then that brings us to how to screen for prostate cancer in patients with germline mutation. For So for per the NCCN guideline, for men with personal history of pathogenic variant in prostate cancer associated with genes, and I list those on the side there, but particularly BRCA2 mutation begins screening at age 40. Uh, and screening includes annual PSA and DRE. And we typically talk about, you know, in average age men, the PSA cutoff is 4, but there's, for men with BRCA1 and 2 carrier, um, the P- PSA cutoff should be, um, uh, uh, you know, lower. And then there's the issue of, you know, do you stop screening at age 75 unless patient is very healthy with little comorbidities. And... In addition to PSA and DRE, the guideline strongly uh, recommend integration of multi-parametric MRI in the screening of patients with germline variants variant for prostate cancer. Now we move on to the issue of how to treat low, low patient with uh, prostate cancer and a germline mutation. So in the setting of uh, localized prostate cancer, Um, So this is a a study out of John Hopkins for men with BRCA1-2 mutation, ATM, who elected active surveillance. They have higher risk of uh, Gleason upgrading on active surveillance, um, and uh, the risk is particularly higher in BRCA2 patients. And in the localized setting, uh, this is a study on men with um, localized prostate cancer who underwent definitive treatment with surgery or radiation. With a BRCA mutation, they tend to have worse metastasis-free survival compared to men without the germline mutation They have worse cancer-specific survival. However, there is currently no guideline recommendation for management of localized prostate cancer in men with BRCA mutation. Um, I think it's generally safe to say that in men with BRCA mutation with low risk prostate cancer who elect for active surveillance, uh, perhaps in this patient I would do closer fel- uh, follow up and um, you know uh, lower trigger for definitive treatment if there's um, uh, progressions up uh, cancer volume or uh, 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 Gleason upgrading. The role of germline testing in management in men with localized prostate cancer um, is unclear. There is low prevalence of germline mutation, and there's, uh, the management strategy in this setting is, is not well defined. Now, unlike localized prostate cancer, in advanced prostate cancer patients with germline mutation, there are... Uh, uh, Better treatment guideline, and uh, the, the point is that we want to move the treatment of these patient from a traditional, uh, you know, one size fit all approach to precision medicine, where you know we can select for therapy based on the patient uh, genotype. And there are two categories up. Um, uh, Therapy, that are available for patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. First are those with uh, DNA-repair gene mutations, and they qualify for BOP inhibitor. Now for olaparib, uh, the uh, indication is a little bit more broad. It's BRCA1-2, ATM, bab 2 Chak-2, Fungi, and uh, RAT51D. Uh, for Rucabarib, it's only for patients with BRCA1-2 mutation and ATM. And Dr. Carlo touched on uh, pembrolizumab or immunotherapy before, and that is patient with mismatch repair-deficient prostate cancer or microsatellite uh, unstable cancer qualified for immunotherapy in addition to tumor mutation burden. Now, it's important to know that it is not the Lynch syndrome diagnosis. It is the tumor phenotype that qualifies patients for immunotherapy. Um, so, um, sorry, going back here. So, in conclusions, um, the genetic and genomic profiling is the standard of care in patient uh, in the uh, the management of patients with prostate cancer. The most important prostate cancer susceptibility genes are BRCA2, BRCA1, PALB2, HOXB13, ATM, and CHEK2. Patients across the spectrum of prostate cancer qualify for genetic evaluation, and I hope by now you've been convinced that the implications for these patients are pretty clear in terms of cancer surveillance, treatment, and family counseling. And patients qualify for germline genetic testing, regardless of personal or family history, are those with high risk localized prostate cancer, no positive, and metastatic disease. And it's especially important in the localized patient because those are the patients that urologists see, and they, we are the gateway to their genetic evaluation. And precision therapy are now approved in the care of prostate cancer patients. So, um, you know, that, uh, that genetic evaluation is. is so important. And I think we actually finish ahead of time. We'll take any question that you have.
4: Very nice series of talks. I have a question about uh, uh, Decipher and whether that can give us any insight as to whether there may be some underlying germline mutations.
1: So the decipher test is a combination of genes, and as far as i as I know, there is no. Um, they don't report the individual mutations on the decipher test. They give you a a, a score, right? And um, that that that
4: doesn't give you any hint as to whether they're a brca.
1: No.
3: It's just transcriptomic, looking at you know a bunch of genes. So it's not like it's not like a looking for the HR defect brca one <laughs> brca two. They're not like on that panel. It's just looking at the aggressivity,
1: yeah, no,
3: right? Because I true. usually
4: order for patients with intermediate risk disease, they're not going to get you know um, uh, you know full uh, genomic evaluation. But uh, I was just curious if that could help. Yeah. I have one other question about uh, the uh, Grail cells, a test called Gallery. Which can potentially check for cell-free DNA that uh, you know could be reflective of underlying cancer, and I think five or six major um, types. Just curious as to what the current thought on that is. It seems pretty exciting.
3: I mean, it's about $1,000 a test, and I don't think it's really reimbursed. It is exciting, but there are some tumor types, like kidney doesn't shed at all. Even in, like, a lot of metastatic patients, you don't see it, but um, they're, they're actively researching. We're actually looking at it with the company. In some of our hereditary patients, we're actually looking at it to see if it would predict, like an HLRCC and SDH, but um, I don't know about in BRAC or the other ones. No.
1: Yeah, no, I I don't think that they... uh. I think that uh, there was an interesting New York Times article about the, the use of rail testing for cancer cancer screening. And uh, I, I don't know if it's ready for, for, you know, being used in a clinical setting yet.
3: I mean, they're putting millions and millions of dollars. Uh, I mean, it, it's better than nothing, but I don't know if it's ready for prime time yet. Right, right. Do you
1: use it, Dr.
3: Smith? I've never used it, but I've had a few people, friends of mine, have
4: asked me about it. Uh And, uh, you know, honestly, I looked at some of the data, and it looks promising. I mean, it seems to be
3: picking up cancers at a time that they need to be treated, but not too late. Um, I mean, I I do worry about, like, kidney cancer. We're going to find, like, one centimeter renal masses, and we're going to be over-treating. I mean, it's... uh, the jury's still out, but uh, they are marketing it to primary care doctors, and I've had a lot of primary care doctors say, I ordered this test, and I don't know what to do with it. Do you want to image them? And I, I, I kind of don't know what to do. Yeah,
4: well, I mean, I, I guess it's quite the holy grail, right, what yeah. they're looking for, it, so. Um, interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Uh, I was just curious what you guys' spiel is when you, you know, counsel ask, talk to patients about genetic testing, like, what do you, Say to them, if you're seeing somebody you, you want to get genetic testing on or refer to them mm-hmm. well, yeah, go
3: ahead, Brian. i I mean I try to explain to them we don't know why you developed this cancer, it could be just due to bad luck, it could be you know environmental, or you could have something which predisposed this to you know uh uh you to develop this, and you might be at risk of developing other cancers, and your family may be at risk of developing other cancers, and you could you know not look into it but a big problem usually starts as a little problem and we'd like to find that little problem early by looking at your genes and I think when you explain it like that most patients are willing to take a look at it. Obviously some patients don't want to be bothered but when you tell them that it also for prostate or, or kidney or bladder might affect that they they might be treated differently and might have better outcomes it's an easy sell.
1: Yeah for, for me you know I uh... Have been referring a lot of patients with prostate cancer to to Dr. Baker, and you know what I what I say is that you know this information uh, will give us some insight into the etiology of that cancer. Uh, you know, a lot of patients, when they develop cancer diagnosis, they want to know why did they develop this cancer. And that's when I start introducing the idea of genetic evaluation, where one way to find out why, maybe to look into your gene and see if there's any gene that may predispose you to uh, to cancer development. Then I also talk about, you know, in localized cancer, this information may not be important at this point yet, but if it ever gets to a point where you need additional therapy, this gives us an additional tool in our toolbox to fight cancer if we need that information. I also talk in young patients, I talk to them about you know, surviving cancer and the risk of developing an additional cancer diagnosis if they have a germline mutation. And if they have a, um, you know, in people with uh, children, right, I talk with them about the, this information is not necessarily just important for you, but they're also important for your children, your grandchildren, so for instance, a 75-year-old, 80-year-old man with metastatic prostate cancer, they may say, you know, why do I care? You know, this is where I'm at. But, you know, it have implication for your family member that they, even though they don't have cancer diagnosis yet, they may qualify for additional testing. It's interesting because sometimes I have men come in with uh, their family member, their niece, their nephew, uh, you know, their children, and they were like, no, no, I think I'm good. And the the, yeah. the, the family member was yeah. like, you should get testing because yeah. we need to know, you know.
3: I'd also just point out that, in urology, we have a unique situation. Men like to put their head in the sand, and uh, if you look at rates of testing for like colorectal cancer, uh, you know it's not balanced. The patients who make it to like uh, Dr. Baker, they're more more likely to be women, and men and women both are at risk of colorectal cancer. So, uh, you know, we have you know had this system where they, they're captive in our clinic, telehealth, genetic counseling set up point of care blood but if you look at it national rates for men who are referred a lot of them don't follow up on it so now as we're moving out we're actually having the clinic coordinator we have a list and they're calling them three times to follow up on it because you know again a lot of these patients wouldn't make it to the genetic counselor if they're but again if you get their children to hound them then i think there's a higher likelihood of success Mm -hmm.
0: do you guys talk to them about like um you know in life insurance stuff like that and cost of the testing or you just kind of defer to that to the to that counselor for
1: for for me i don't because i have the benefit of having dr baker and her genetic team talk to them and i i I figured out you know because i actually don't order the genetic test either um you know i i I refer them to dr baker and she see them pretty quickly
2: there still are a lot of misperceptions about the cost of genetic testing the potential for genetic discrimination so at the very least we need to dispel those misperceptions because that could be the barrier that would prevent a patient from moving forward and I will say many times it is the children that prompt an individual to move forward and they'll even say during a counseling session as we're trying to determine whether they want to move forward with testing well you know, it's for my children, really, that I wanna do this testing, and I'll explain to them, but there actually are some personal benefits as well. You know, if we find a BRCA2 mutation, for example, and I'm meeting with a 65-year-old female who still has her ovaries and her tubes, it could have implications. Many times, a patient with breast cancer will say, Well, I've already had cancer, so what do I need to do this testing for? I I know I already, you know, I only want uh, breast conserving surgery. I don't want to do a bilateral. I don't need this genetic information. But, you know, we could cure her of her breast cancer, but if she develops an ovarian cancer that we didn't have a heads up about, or could do something different to prevent it from happening, you know. And when you look at uh, pathology specimens in women who undergo risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy, a small percentage of them have occult fallopian tube cancer, where we believe most of the ovarian cancer originates. And literally, you know, we all have patients where they've literally rewritten their future because they embrace the technology and they met with someone to decide what I should do based on those positive test results, and they literally changed their their, their course.
3: I'd say for, for Gina. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I used to test on my, my own. Um, you know, I spent five years with genetic counselors in a joint clinic, so when I got to UCLA and I didn't have that resource, I had a patient, let's say, with HLRCC suspicion, I'd make them watch, there's a series of videos like on Invitae's website, and I would just document it. If you're not documenting that you're doing the whole process, uh, you know, I think you're at risk. and there's some patients who, if they got tested and they at like 38, and they try to apply for life insurance, they could probably sue you if they didn't really show that there was like informed consent. Uh, I do think these telehealth companies are going to expand access so you don't have to hire your own genetic counselor to be in clinic with you. And if you don't have a, a, not an academic center, you know, getting a genetic counselor could be challenging. But there, these companies, there's people licensed in every single state and they're, you know, it's very hard for us to recruit academic genetic counselors because they can be in their own home and they could be like wearing their underwear, doing a counseling session and they get paid more by a lot of these companies. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's great. Thank you.
5: Hi, I have a a few comments and questions. I am from Mexico City and um, I wanted to ask you something that we have found after the pandemic and the confinement. Mexico is a country with very little incidence of prostate cancer. Every time we came here to the AUA, this is my 33rd meeting here in the AUA. And I remember all this through these years, uh, they were telling all the incidences and everything. Mexico was very low. We didn't have too much uh, radical prostatectomies as we have now. After the pandemic and the confinement, uh, we have found in our offices, in mine at, at least, that uh, PSAs, some patients that were normal one year, the next one, there were from 350. Uh, For us to see a patient with 22 of PCA, they were just spread all over. 350 in a year and 700 in a year, it's been out of range for us. Uh, We've seen patients with 3,500 of PSA. So, first, this is the first question: Is uh, have you seen something like that uh, in your experience, in your practice? You've heard something that these um, PSAs are rising so high and so fast. I
1: mean, that uh, I I seen. <laughs> I mean, I think here in patient who are. Uh, Usually the PSA, that's that high, are those without a cancer diagnosis. I haven't seen someone who's actually in urology, urology clinic who we managing them, either active surveillance or definitive treatment, that all of a sudden they just jump that quickly. I personally haven't seen them. I have seen patients who come in with initial diagnosis of prostate cancer, uh, the novel who who have that high PSA, but Brian. Too.
3: Yeah, I mean, I do think we'll see. Looking back, you know, ten years from now, we'll see that the the pandemic, where we had two or three years of people not going to the doctor you know, there's probably a higher rate of more aggressive cancer. And also, you know, living a sedentary lifestyle and having unhealthy, you know, food choices, uh, you know, also pre, uh, predisposes risk. So I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of different factors which could be making patients presented a more aggressive or more advanced disease that are, you know, environmental, uh, uh, um, that may not be genetic.
5: Yeah, that that was that's my next question, is that um, epigenetics and environment, does it have something to do We have more pollution, different kind of pollution. And uh, um, Mm -hmm. we're also having a pollution of, um, I call light. We are more exposed to light for more hours than I believe we should and many other things. So you think uh, also, I have a question of these new vaccines that we all have worldwide. Uh, Does these vaccines, new vaccines without testing and All the things uh, you think it might have something to do with what we're looking at?
2: I know when patients will mention to me, you know, some exposure history that they had, I'll never uh, dismiss that per se, but I'll mention that, you know, we are a combination of our genes and our environment and lifestyle habits, and there's an expression genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Um, You know, you take uh, something like HIV, which initially we would think is completely due to exposure history, but yet studies have shown that there are individuals that have certain variants in their genes that can be exposed again and again and are less likely to become infected. So everything, I think it's on a continuum, everything (coughs) has different (coughs) amounts of genetic and environmental contributions, some more, some less.
3: Okay. I mean, there there are a lot of things that we just don't know, and over time, I mean, now we're learning, you know, I, I would tell you, I've seen a lot of men who are like 30-year-old vets that have been exposed to burn pits in, like, Iraq and Afghanistan, and they've presented with horrible kidney cancers, and they get genetic testing, so I I, I mean, it might be some susceptibility genes that we just don't know, but, you know, again, it, it is probably multifactorial. There are, you know, even though, you know, we're telling you today about the monogenic conditions. But I think we'll be moving more towards polygenic risk scores. They have that for prostate cancer. Very soon I think we'll have that for kidney cancer when they're doing like 10,000 case control series looking for SNPs. Um, They know it's gonna be more complicated. I'm sure there's an interplay between the genetics and the environment. We're just not very smart. We think we are, but we're not.
5: And lastly, uh, we have been, uh, we had in Mexico uh, lutetium approved since 2018. I know in, in the U.S. it just became uh, available for, for metastatic cancer. I sent a, a paper for these years here at the It it was uh, out of the program, but what we're doing since 2018 is that after a localized cancer, after a radical prostatectomy with a robotic uh, prostatectomy with a Da Vinci system, uh, we're giving um, a prophylactic dose a month and a half after the surgery. Since 2018 to this date, we have no recurrence rate, zero. Have you heard something about it? Because I haven't read anything about it. And uh, this paper was not uh, this year. I don't know why. Because to use luthesium as a prophylactic, I haven't heard it. And it, we, uh, we based that on um, the use of the lutetium because every time you... Um, there were papers in the 90s that uh, when you were performing the radical prostatectomy that those were open before uh, even laparoscopy. Um, those samples of the blood were, uh, uh, were found to have some uh, uh, neoplastic cells, prostate cells. So that's why we decided to go for a prophylactic After the radical prostatectomy with the Da Vinci, when we had it, and so far we haven't had uh, any recurrence. None of our patients is with any other medication so far, and uh, PSAs are 0.3, 0.005, things like that. But uh, what do you think of what we're doing? That now I mean, that you're it sounds in-
3: exciting. It, I mean, it is, if it's done on you know trial, I think it's something where, you would know, be very uh, thought provoking. But I know in the, in the U.S. we we can't just pr- prescribe it without uh, it's very restricted. I mean, the, the Novartis and Telix have approved. Uh, you know, Novartis and Telix have PSMA agents, but I think only Novartis has the uh, approved uh, lutetium, and Telix has one which will probably be approved in the near future. But, um, you know, th- these are, uh, I think, beta emitters. And, they, they you know, they, if you can see the tumor on the PSMA or, or soon the zirconium PET-CT and kidney cancer, then you can have something home to that and treat it. Um, and uh, it should be able to identify micrometastatic sites as well.
5: Okay. Um, well, let,
3: yes, This is the very last
5: thing. Sorry, guys. Um, we give a physics course applied to urology every year we've done about 20 of those in Mexico. And we invite people from NASA and other institutes from astrophysics and things like that. And I have asked them now, I'm asking you, all these uh, things are happening, radiation and things like that, you think this it's, uh, might be influencing all these changes and mutations in the genes and, and stuff? And if so, how could be all mankind be protected
3: I mean there's I mean, even probably f- you flying here probably gave you a lot of radiation dose so we appreciate you taking that risk to fly here but uh, I mean the airline pilots I mean it you know there's a lot more radiation but um, uh, you know it, it's not that uh, the risk I don't think is that substantial. But we do know like even in doctors who are like interventional radiologists, the risk of glioblastoma is higher. So, um, you know, radiation does impact. You know, we do know obviously acute radiation like survivors of Hiroshima, they have a much higher rate of certain cancers. But, you know, when when you look at certain risks, um, I worked before I went to medical school. I worked in a geochemistry lab. People were doing uranium dating, and the average age of those people were in their 50s. Uh, where they died because they were exposed to high levels of radiation. So uh, it's definitely, um, you know, I'm sure with the ozone layer decreasing, there's probably more radiation going, and I- I'm sure um, uh, it's impacting uh, rates of cancer. Okay.
5: That was it. Thank you very much.